Welcome to the Outthinker Podcast. Each week, we talk with forward-looking strategists and innovators that are challenging the status quo, leading the future of business, and shaping our world. I'm your host, Kyan Krippendorf, founder of the Outthinker Strategy Network. Today, we're going to hear from Scott Anthony. He is a partner at Intersight, the innovation consulting firm founded by the late Clayton Christensen, who was a professor of Scott's before they later became colleagues and collaborators. Scott was ranked as one of the top 10 management thinkers in the world in 2019 by Thinkers 50. He is the author of many books, including Dual Transformation, Seeing What's Next, The Innovator's Guide to Growth, and most recently, Eat Sleep, Innovate, How to Make Creativity an Everyday Habit Inside Your Organization. In this episode, Scott will lay out for us some really practical things that you can do right now to unlock innovation within your organization, how to start shifting the behaviors and your culture to allow for the kind of innovation that your future depends on. He's also going to talk to us about his BEANS framework that can be used to break down barriers to innovation. Stick around. Scott, thank you very much for being here on Outthinkers. Just for us to get to know you a little bit, could you complete this sentence for me? If you really know me, you know that. Uh, There's many responses I can think, but the one that's freshest in my mind is that I am the sort of person that will create a spreadsheet in real time to see what are the statistical odds of my four-year-old boy having the first four squares of a scary bingo card completed, and what would be the odds of him running the gamut and having the entire card completed. I will not tell you what the answers are, but I did on my phone build a spreadsheet in real time to figure it out. I'm a bit of a... What is scary bingo? Uh, it's a, a bingo game that has mythical monsters on it. So it's something that's very good for a four-year-old because there's only, I think, about 40 different monsters in it and 25 squares in the board. So a lot of the times you get something and you get to fill a square on. And they're all kind of silly looking and he has a lot of fun doing it. Love it. Love it. Yeah, we'll get to your kids, I think, a little bit later on. I know that they've been quite an inspiration for you and your work and, and your new book as well. Just to warm us up, just tell me, there are many diff- definitions of strategy, obviously, but what, what would you say your definition of strategy is? Yeah, there are a lot of different uh, definitions out there. And, and the, the one that I like, it, it's a little bit of Roger Martin from Playing to Win, a little bit of Richard Bromo from Good Strategy, Bad Strategy. It's a set of congruent choices to achieve a desired aim. And the important thing there is you've got the choices. So you are making choices. There's congruence. They all make sense together. And there's an aim or objective that you're trying to achieve. And of course, That is different from execution, where you go and take those choices and put them into action, but that's the definition that I like to use. Got it. Yep. That makes absolute sense. Of course, that raises the question, what should the aim be? And that could be a a very deep uh, discussion, um, which maybe we'll save for another time. So what got you interested in strategy? I know you've studied with Clayton Christensen. You've written many books on innovation and strategy. What got you interested in strategy originally? You know, I I think the first time the bug really bit me was back in 1994, 1995. At the time, I was a student at Dartmouth College. And in addition to doing all the stuff that one would do in class, 
I was the managing editor of our daily newspaper, creatively called The Dartmouth. And if you remember back in time, 1994, 1995, that's right when the internet is crossing into the mainstream, when the Netscape browser is introduced, and it goes from being something that's really at the edge to something that's really going to go and ultimately change a lot of industries. And we had to, uh, in our little newspaper with our little team, deal with the same set of choices that everybody had to deal with. And honestly, we didn't make those choices very well. We were afraid to go on the internet. When we went on, we didn't choose to reinvent or reimagine. Once a week, we created a word-for-word replication of the print version of the newspaper online, not trying to do anything different, but trying to find more people to subscribe to the print version of the newspaper. And I ultimately learned when I studied under Clayton Christensen a few years later that we ran into the classic traps that make it hard for incumbents to respond to disruptive change. So it was that experience as a college student that began to show me what is it like to run an organization What does it feel like when you're dealing with existential challenges and how hard it is to make the right choices? Because the right choices don't look like the right choices in those moments. That is fascinating. And then a couple decades later, you are writing about it. It sounds a little bit like your dual transformation book. What was that? What's the core concept there? Yeah. So the the core concept in dual transformation, which has a very clear connection to the newspaper, just, you know, origin story of dual transformation. One of our long-term colleagues at Insight, he's been an advisor to us since the beginning, is Clark Gilbert. Gilbert was a doctoral student at the Harvard Business School studying how incumbents responded to disruptive change. He focused on the U.S. newspaper industry. And if you go back and look at his doctoral dissertation now more than 20 years ago, he had this little chart in it that had two bubbles on it that basically said, when an incumbent is responding to disruptive change, it has to do two things. Number one, it has to reinvent its current business to make it more resilient in the face of the change. And number two, it has to go and create a vibrant new growth business. He didn't quite call it dual transformation at that point, but the seeds were in his dissertation research. So we did a bunch of work with the U.S. newspaper industry trying to advise them to do this, and they pretty much ignored us. The story (laughs) that's really interesting about 15 years ago now when Clark gets a tap on the shoulder and is asked to become the CEO of a newspaper company. And everybody in the industry laughs. They say, well, the academic will learn what life is like in real life. When he leaves a a few years later, nobody is laughing. Everybody is studying because he took an industry and a business that seemed to be on death's door and turned it into a growth business. And ultimately, as we decoded what he did there and what he did when he went to become a university president, we coined this idea of dual transformation, where you simultaneously reinvent today and create tomorrow. It's a very simple idea, but of course, doing it is incredibly difficult because you're wading right into the territory that Christensen famously called the innovator's dilemma. As a leader, you've got to deal with this duality of trying to deal with two very different types of challenges simultaneously. So an incredibly hard thing to do. But when you get it right, It is the recipe for turning disruption from a threat into an opportunity. Got it. Yes, that makes a ton of sense. And it sounds like with your recent book, your your newest book, you're also addressing the the organizational, psychological, cultural um, barriers. I was wondering, you, you, you do talk about that. Your kids were sort of an inspiration to you starting to work on this book. Can you just tell me kind of what have you learned from your kids? Yeah, no, I, absolutely. The, the, what my kids have taught me is the puzzle that we seek to address in the latest book, which is called Eat, Sleep, Innovate. And the title, I, the title was suggested by the publisher. At first, I have to be perfectly honest, we hated it, but we've grown to really love it. The, the idea of the title is pretty simple. You eat every day, you sleep every day, 
you should be innovating every day as well. So the book is about how you create a culture of innovation. So my kids, the thing that I've learned from my kids is that the behaviors that drive innovation success are not things that we have to teach human beings because kids enter the world naturally curious, naturally creative, naturally entrepreneurial, naturally willing to experiment, naturally willing to collaborate. So the puzzle that is formed in my head is why is it that children are such natural innovators, but organizations struggle so much with innovation? And on one hand, it's a pretty simple question, actually, because innovation is something different that creates value. And organizations are designed and optimized to do what they are currently doing more effectively and more efficiently. They're designed to keep doing the same thing. They're not designed to do something different. So if you're trying to create a culture where those behaviors are everyday habits, you have to fight against the organization itself. You have to fight against ingrained habits. You have to fight against institutionalized inertia that can border on an addiction to business as usual. And of course, in the book, we describe what you can do to go and win that battle. So tell us about that. What can you do to win that battle? So I am a big believer in stealing ideas shamelessly. Pablo mm-hmm. Picasso, good artist copy, great artist steal. So what we did is pretty simple. We ripped a page from the habit change literature, which has been primarily aimed at individuals, and we brought it to institutions and organizations. And we said what the habit change literature teaches us, if you're trying to overcome inertia and follow a new habit, it is a two-front battle. The first front is what we call a behavior enabler. This is where you're going after the rational, the logical part of your brain. You're giving people things like checklists and tools to help them do new things. The second front is what we call artifacts and nudges. This is where you're going after the unconscious, the visual reminder that leads you to do something without you even thinking about it, gamification principles, and so on. You put those two fronts together, behavior enabler, artifact, and nudge, and you've got the basic tool in the book, the idea of a bean. And in the book, we've got 101 very simple beans. Some of these are prizes like Tata's Dare to Try prize that is awarded to people who tried something that didn't work out. Some of these things are rituals like Amazon's ritual of the empty chair to signify the most important person, the customer isn't in the room. But 101 of these things to help to overcome inertia and encourage those behaviors that drive innovation success. Got it. Yeah, that is a very sticky term. I've heard many people refer to it. You've got a great article on HBR and other places on the bean concept. I haven't found someone that addresses the cultural challenge of enabling this dual innovation as uh, acutely and, and, and specifically as you have. It's great. One thing I love about your work is that you come at things with questions, not only answers. So what's something that you've changed your mind about? I can geek out right here, and I I probably will for just a minute or so. So, you know, there's a field of thinking in the literature about how you deal with innovation and change called ambidexterity. Mike Tushman and Charles O'Reilly are kind of some of the originators of the idea. And for a long period of time, I would say as much as I respect all the scholarly work that has been done around it, I just didn't think it really worked in the field because the challenge I would always say is ambidexterity gives you an ability to play a particular game well. So if you look at someone like LeBron James, he is ambidextrous. Cristiano Ronaldo is ambidextrous. But that doesn't help them play multiple sports simultaneously because they spend their entire life honing their ability in one area. So I'd say ambidexterity, okay concept, but it's not really the answer to the problem. I, I realize that it is actually the answer to the problem. And you also then need something that goes above ambidexterity at the leadership level. So it really is a yes and proposition where ambidexterity is a really powerful organizational construct, 
but it has to then be run by a leader that has something that goes beyond ambidexterity, I think at least. And this is some of the latest work that we're doing to really push the frontier for what it takes to lead through an organization that is managing this duality of reinventing today and creating tomorrow, where the organization is ambidextrous and the leader is a master of paradoxes that can handle those two challenges simultaneously, which in our view at least goes beyond ambidexterity. But I've decided that I should be nicer to the ambidexterity literature because it's an awesome set of ideas and really powerful and really practical as well. Fascinating. And so is that what you're working on next? Yeah. So this, this is something that we're really trying to think through. You know, So I had an article that was in the Sloan Management Review with my friend Michael Putz last year that was called How Leaders Delude Themselves About Disruption. And again, it takes a little bit from the behavior change, habit change literature to say, essentially, what are the biases and blind spots that lead to us systematically overestimating how hard it is to respond to disruption and underestimating the threat? And the more that we look at this problem from a human lens, the more we look at organizations from a system psychodynamic lens, we can see the humanity of the innovator's dilemma in all levels of the organizations. I think we've got great technical answers now. I think we know dual transformation is a prescription that works. I think we've got a lot of great tools from either the Disruptive Innovation School, the Design Thinking School, the Blue Ocean School, whatever. I think we've got a lot of great tools to go and solve those technical challenges But the next frontier is the adaptive challenge of what does it take to really confront the humanity of this challenge? And I think there are emerging answers. The academic literature has a really interesting vein of thinking about how you confront paradoxes, how you have a paradox mindset, how you follow paradoxical leadership behaviors that I think if synthesized, simplified, and streamlined a little bit, has some really interesting things that can help leaders rise to the challenge of disruptive change. We're not there yet, still a lot of work to do, but those are the sorts of things we're wrestling with now. One question that I just sort of came up with, you know, we didn't talk about ahead of time, which is, are the application of these kind of, this knowledge and and technique, I kind of think of it as we've got nudges, you've got gamification, you've got behavioral finance, um, kind of all of that kind of sits in, it seems like, an advancement in understanding the behavioral change or you know, managing behavioral change, but, but kind of at a micro level, as opposed to kind of like the, the deeper psychological level, are we learning new things in that area? Yeah, I think so. And I, I think if you look at one of the protagonists of Eat, Sleep, Innovate, it's one of the co-authors of the book. So it's written by three people from Innosight, me, my colleagues, Natalie Pinchot and Andy Parker, and then the chief data and transformation officer at DBS Bank, the largest bank here in Southeast Asia. And the DBS Bank story is really a stunning story. You know, when I moved out to Singapore 11 years ago in 2010, DBS Bank was the lowest ranked bank in Singapore. And today it is widely recognized as one of the best banks, if not the best bank in the world. And it's an innovation powerhouse, digital transformation and all that. If you talk to Paul about what happened, a lot of the story is the very thoughtful application of the idea of beans. And what Paul says is really powerful about beans is they shrink the challenge into bite-sized ability for people to go and really take that small step that leads to them beginning to do something different. And a lot of those small steps add up. And I think we're learning more and more about what it takes for individuals to change, for teams to change, for groups to change, for organizations to change. Now, of course, there's a lot of good thinking out there about culture change. That's absolutely true. Leaders need to walk the talk. You need to have an inspiring vision. All those things are true as well. 
And the bean concept can help you really to take that step to unfreeze parts of your organization and make motion against the inertia that's holding you back, shrinking the challenge. Love it. Love it. So let me just bring it to close then. I got many other questions I'd love to ask, but time is uh, reaching the end. So what specifically, what does someone do next? Someone that wants to change their culture to allow for these two different forms of innovation to happen? We've got the bean. What specifically, what do I do this afternoon? I think it comes back to our definition of innovation, something different that creates value. You do something. You can't do something different that creates value unless you actually go and do something. And there's a bunch of things you can do, but you have to not talk about it. You have to not study it. You have to not go put another slogan on on the wall. You have to actually do something about it. And if I were to pick all the beans in the book and say, this is one that I wish more organizations would do, it's the Supercell Cheers to Failure ritual. Supercell finished gaming company working on new games all the time. When they succeed and launch a new game, they say cheers to success. Everyone cracks open a beer. But when they admit defeat, when they fail, they everyone celebrates. They say cheers to failure. They pop open champagne. And the reason I love that so much is one of the greatest enemies inside organizations is what I call the plague of the zombie project, the walking undead, the projects that suck all the innovation life out of the organization. And if you start saying cheers to failure, you put the zombies down, you create the energy, you create space to be more psychologically safe, and lots of good things happen. So you need to go and do something. And at least one thing you can go and do is go pop some champagne kill a project and say a great thing has happened. That sounds liberating. Uh, and how can people find you? So I'm, I'm on all the major social networks, but uh, LinkedIn is the one that I'm on most frequently. So Scott Anthony tied to Innosite. And the book, you go to eatsleepinnovate.com and we've got a really nice companion website. All 101 beans can be downloaded from it, blah, 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 blah. Excellent. Scott, thank you so much for being here with us and for the work that you do. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you to our guest. Thank you to our producer, Zach Ness, our editor, and the rest of the team. If you like what you heard, please follow, download, and subscribe. I'm your host, Kaihan Krippendorf. Thank you for listening. Catch you next week with another episode of Outthinkers. Thinkers.